turn with me again to 1 Peter, the second chapter, and the fifth verse. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Well, for myself, congregation, I count it a great blessing that every Lord's Day we begin with the reading of the law of God. The natural tendency of the human heart is to lower God from his holy throne of justice, purity, and judgment. A sinful human heart would fashion a false God of our own devising, of our own choosing, who can be satisfied with anything less than strict and perfect justice and holiness. What is every false religion but the belief that we can fashion together some sort of standard other than perfection and then find that God is accepted with it? Impossible, blasphemous, flatly contrary to the truth. We are reminded every Lord's Day where we hear the holy commandments of God that he is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who disobey his commandments. Indeed, it is a fearful thing that we as sinners should reckon honestly with the holiness of God. He is called a consuming fire. It is said that there is, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Indeed, this is why so many will not bear the doctrine of God's holiness. They cannot endure the strict preaching and reading of the law, for you see, it shows us to be really what we are, heinous, defiled, wicked, and loathsome in the sight of the righteous judge of heaven and earth. And so it is that only this truth can prepare one for the wonder, for the awe, for the glory of this statement, which is found in our verse, acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. The Greek word just brings together two Greek words. The Greek word for well and the word received. Well received. You could literally translate it. It is the idea of most pleasing, most acceptable, most right in the estimation of God. But it's an estimation here made of people, made of human beings born and conceived in sin 
like anyone else. Heirs of the condemnation of Father Adam with the pollution and defilement they received from him all their lives long, heaping up a huge mountain of sins against their account. And yet here they are spoken of as acceptable to God. It is the same word that the Apostle Paul speaks of in the book of Romans, the 15th chapter, the 16th verse, where he says that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. How precious it is, congregation, that the preaching of the gospel yet goes forth. Where else can you look or where else can you find a word of hope in this world as it is in rebellion against God? Where else can you find any kind of assurance of peace, pardon, and acceptance before the holy judge of heaven but that of the gospel? the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How central this is. I remember this morning as I was meditating and and praying in preparation for this sermon, I saw an ambulance roll by my neighborhood with the lights on but the siren off. I thought about that. Why would the lights be on but the siren off? Well, they have an occupant most likely. But it's in no hurry. Could it be that even this morning someone in my neighborhood has passed into eternity? Could it be that someone else even that we know before the day is out would pass into eternity before they would expect to do so? How central, how important it is that we answer this question. Are we acceptable unto God? Are we among those who are spoken of here. Eternity hangs in the balance. The life that we have is short, but a vapor. And we have this great need above all needs. The one thing that is needful is to possess the heart of the gospel, and that is salvation. Brought from a state of condemnation to being acceptable with God. A most crucial verse in the Apostle Peter's epistle here. He sets forth words of comfort, words of consolation to the pilgrims serving God there in Asia Minor, the persecuted church, enduring affliction, enduring hardship, enduring trial. What else could uplift their spirits but the word of the gospel? What else could lift them up from the dunghill of this world of woe but that word of peace and truth and life found in Jesus Christ, acceptable to God? A verse here has occupied my attention for some time, and I would desire to set forth for you just some of the things that we find in it. 
You'll notice that two main thoughts are included here. The thought that these who are acceptable to God are likened to stones. And the second place, they are called priests. Well, I would only open up the first thought today, and we will leave the second thought for uh, another sermon. But for this morning, let us focus uh, on the first part of this verse under the theme acceptable to God. And we will consider the persons, the persons. Second, we will consider the power. And third, we will consider the purpose. The persons, the power, and the purpose. The persons. Let's look again in verse 5, but also looking in the context of verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. He also as Lively stones are built up a spiritual house, unholy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Well, maybe, children, you remember that some time ago we spoke about verse 4, and we spoke about what it means that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. If you're going to build a building, then you need to build on a foundation, something that can support the weight of the building. And so it is that Jesus Christ fulfills that function. It's that reason that he is called a stone in that verse. And there's more about that in the verses that follow. But the Christian stands in a particular relationship to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. In verse 4, the Christian is coming to the living stone. And then in verse 5, it explains that this relationship means something about the Christian. You see, the Christian is also a kind of stone. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. Lively stones. Does it strike you as a bit strange? Indeed, sometimes parts of the Bible, we can be familiar with them. We don't even think about them. It's just phrases we've been used to. But then we have to stop and think, why? Why would God so call the Christians stones? Why would he call you, Christian, a stone? Maybe children, you've walked through the woods, and you've seen a little stone there on the ground, and you've never mistaken that for a person, have you? You've never looked down and said, that's going to be someone I'm going to talk to, I'm going to take home. Well, no, it's just a stone. A stone, if you think about it, is kind of the lowest part of creation. It's lower than the human beings who are made in the image of God. It's lower even than the animals and the other brute beasts, the birds and the fish and the squirrels and so forth. The stone cannot move. The stone is just there. It remains. And it is not particularly important. And yet I wonder, is God trying to 
change something about our thinking about ourselves by calling the Christian a stone. It may be the case that sometimes we fall into a wrong thinking about ourselves, which can be the root of all sorts of problems. Isn't that true? There are problems that are forced upon us sometimes that are beyond our control, but, but very seldom is there a problem that we cannot make worse by thinking wrongly about it, particularly our role in it. Who am I? Who am I really? Well, sometimes Jesus would, would use this way of teaching. He would try to shape people's wrong thinking and correct it by comparing people to stones. Well, let me, before I speak of Jesus, let me first speak of John the Baptist, that servant of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5, where John the Baptist begins his ministry. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. What was the problem? Well, you have the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they think they're quite something. They've got a religious title. They've got a religious office. They consider themselves to be a cut above the rest. And so they've come there and they've come to hear what this wild man, John the Baptist, might be doing in the Jordan River. All these people, all of Judea, it seems, coming to be baptized of him. But, the Lord, but you see, the, the prophet, he sees these people coming and he says, well, your thinking is all wrong. You think that you are something, but in fact, you are nothing. You think that because you have Abraham as your father, you have reason to boast before God. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Stones. Not only, he says, are you no better than any other child of Abraham. Indeed, of yourself, you're no better than these stones. These stones on the ground, God in his infinite power and good pleasure, he could in an instant turn them into children of Abraham. His arm is not shortened that he could not do it. And so, why is it that you would boast about anything? Sometimes we fall into that wrong thinking. We think that we are something. We think that we have attained to anything. We think that we can look down upon others and think ourselves to be a cut above the rest. And then God would cut down our pride and bring us low not by comparing ourselves to others, but by raising our gaze heavenward unto the holiness of God. Really, that seems to be whatever uh, role the teaching of the rock is and when it's used to describe human beings. It's usually that, isn't it? To compare who we are 
before God. If you would not look down on a if you would look down on a rock and think that's unimportant compared to me, how much more should you look up into God and his glory and think how puny, how small, how insignificant you are? Indeed, this is really the problem, isn't it, with a great many, even in the professing church. Whatever they have attained by knowledge only serves to puff them up. Whatever they have received by way of privileges and access to the means of grace. Whatever it is that they may have heard or learned or experienced or understood. It is all a sort of trap to ensnare them in a kind of false religious pride. And pride that can exist just as well in the heart of the dead and the unregenerate, spiritually dead that is those who are strangers to the Lord's grace. How sweet it is where that would be abolished from us, where we would be shown who we truly are before the righteous God. Here's another case in which uh, thinking was corrected by comparing people to rocks. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 35, you Remember how it was, children, that Moses, uh, rather Jesus, I should say, rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey. A very humble way to ride into Jerusalem and the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning this, but a very humble way for the Messiah to come. But then we read in Luke chapter 19, In verse 35, and they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they they spread the clothes in the way. And when it was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones should immediately cry out. Striking thing. It seems that these Pharisees at this point were serving the role of Satan, as accusers of the brethren. There they are, and they are attacking the disciples, attacking the followers of Jesus for crying out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, for saying, here is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Who are these so to speak? How can they make a right estimation of these things? How can they understand anything from the word of God? How can they be worthy to so recognize the Messiah when he is before them? And so it is that sometimes the devil would seek to implant such thoughts into someone's mind. Not indeed that they are too great, they would say. 
before the sight of God, but that they are so utterly unworthy that they despair of any grace, they despair of having any usefulness for the kingdom, they despair of ever being able to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is that true humility? Is it true humility to say, no, no, I could never confess the name of Christ. No, no, I could never praise the name of Christ. No, no, I could never find myself as a true disciple of Christ. Well, indeed, it may seem like humility where Satan would suggest such a thought, perhaps by bringing your past or present sins to mind. And making you recognize that you are a sinner. But doing so in such a way as to implant this thought. Therefore, do not obey the gospel. Therefore, resist the call to believe. Therefore, resist the call to confess his name. Therefore, count yourself unworthy to worship and praise the Lord Jesus. And tell you... Dear friend, that should this temptation come upon you, it is no true humility, but a sneaky form of pride. Humility never resists the commands of God and the gospel. That is not true humility. That is itself a lie of the devil. Again, what are you doing? Who are you? Jesus says, if these should not cry out, then even the stones would immediately cry out. You may think that you are unworthy of obeying the gospel, but let me tell you this, Christ is worthy that you obey. You may count yourself unworthy to praise the Lord. I tell you, God is worthy to receive your praise. God has purposed that through the blessings of the gospel that sinners should be saved and redeemed and brought into his gospel church, that they would be tokens of his grace. If we should not cry out, brothers and sisters, the stones would cry out. God will not be without a witness. There will be a witness of his grace. Why not you? Why not me? Yes, in ourselves we are nothing and less than nothing, traitors unto the throne of heaven, transgressors of the law. But God is so purposed to manifest his grace even among sinners such as we are. Stones, stones. And ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual House. If we can say that in general, this comparison to stones is designed to change our thinking, change our thoughts, then we also ought to pay attention to the specific use of stones here. There's an allusion, you see, to a specific part of the Bible. Would you turn with me again to what we read uh, in 1 Kings chapter 5? Chapter 5, I obviously will not read the whole chapter again, but I wanted to read it to you because this is actually a very central part of redemptive history. Throughout all the winding history of the people of Israel, they never once attained to a height as was found under the reign of King Solomon. 
Under Moses, they were led out of the wilderness and into the promised land by Joshua. And under the judges, some of the enemies were put down. And under King David, the the nation was consolidated. But it was only under Solomon that finally the temple could be built. The pinnacle, the high point of all instituted worship, where the sacrifices could be made, where the priests could sing the psalms, where it was that God would be named in an unusual and in a most glorious way. You notice how it's put there in verse 5. Solomon says, Behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. And we read the whole scope of the passage in the chapter that follows, and, and we see how it was that God seems to have laid upon the heart of one of the neighboring kings, a man by the name of Hiram, the king of Tyre, to join with Solomon in this great work. This great temple, a massive structure, its specifications laid out in great detail in these verses. It seems as though, if you compare it also with the account in First Chronicles, that as many as 150,000 people were involved in some way in this colossal building project. It would be a glorious structure decked out in gold and, and fine jewels, and it would set forth something of the magnificence of God in the revelation that he has in the worship received from his people. But you notice here that this King Hiram, he is, in speci- he is especially enlisted by Solomon in order to uh, find the stones necessary for the structure. So you see in verse 17 and 18, and the king commanded and they brought great stones, costly stones and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the house and Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them in the stone quarters. So they prepared timber and timber. They prepared timber and stones to build the house. What a massive jog that would have been. Can you imagine it, children, working all day in a great big stone quarry, maybe the side of a mountain, and you're called upon by your king to work all day. And what you do is you, you chisel out these great massive stones, stones that are great, stones that are valuable, stones that have a special purpose, the worship and the glory of God. And these stones, you see, were to be fashioned. They were to be hewn out or chiseled out of the rock face. And they were to be each one sculpted to the exact specifications for this temple. And so you notice that, for example, in chapter 6 and verse 7. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought thither. So that there was neither hammer nor axe nor tool of iron heard in the chamber while it was in the building. What is the principle there? Well, 
that uh, a work must be done, a work of artistry, a work of craftsmanship, before it is to be put to the use of God. These craftsmen, they must take their care in order to make sure that everything is right, everything is specified to the exact shape before it can be placed even in the temple uh, construction site. What could all this be? Well, we understand, of course, that there is an historical record here which is accurate. But it's more than that. There's a spiritual principle here, for there's a foreshadowing of the great work of the Messiah. In the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12, speaking of the Messiah, it says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of the, his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. You know, some people are expecting another temple in Jerusalem. Did you know that? Some people get very excited about the fact, well, maybe they'll build another temple on the Temple Mount. And sometimes you even see politicians, even people who claim to be Christians, they'll, they'll put on a yarmulke and they'll go down to Jerusalem and they'll sort of pray by the wall there in Jerusalem. As though there was something special about that structure, as though rebuilding the temple was, would be something that would please God. Well, the truth of the scriptures found also in our text in, in uh, 1 Peter is that the fulfillment of all the prophecies that speak of a future temple after the uh, temples there in Jerusalem under the old covenant would be one that is spiritual, would be one that consists in believers being united unto Christ in their joyful service. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, we read this same doctrine and are built up the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Well, this is the real person who is acceptable to God. They're not just likened to stones, just as some sort of object lesson, but specifically in this sense. They are not stones uh, hewn out of a rock quarry, but they are separated from a world of sin to serve God in the church of the living God. It brings me to the second consideration about this text, not only the persons, but the power. The power. You notice some of the descriptions that are used in the verse. Ye also as lively stones, as stones that are alive, are built up a spiritual house. Here's the description, and I love what Dr. Gill says in his commentary. He says, saints, that is, holy believers, saints, likewise are compared to stones. They lie in the same quarry and are the same by nature as the rest of mankind till dug out and separated from thence by the powerful 
and efficacious grace of God when they are hewn and made fit for the spiritual building. I think there is something most striking about this description of stones. For the, the stone is often described in relation to the lack of spiritual life, of hardness and resistance to the word of God. So it was in Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 12, Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath. From the Lord of hosts. So it is that the stony heart is described as one that is not possessing spiritual life, that has not received the words of the law with tenderness, obedience, humility, and repentance. But such is showing forth the need for a great and powerful change. A power from heaven must be necessary. Dr. Gill again says that life which they derive from Christ and have in him, they are called lively or lively stones. The spirit of life having entered into them, a principle of life being implanted in them and coming to Christ. The, lot, the living stone, they live upon him and he lives in them and his grace in them is a well of living water springing up un, into eternal life. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Here is that people which is acceptable unto God. They are not like Nicodemus who come to Jesus under cloak of night. Who can speak much of him. And yet all the while, their religious profession is without spiritual life. Jesus has to strike Nicodemus low, didn't he? He had to say, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye be born again, ye cannot see the kingdom of God. A spiritual power and a spiritual life is necessary. Not with the artistry of human hands, but with the powerful arm of God's spirit working in our hearts, bringing us into a right fellowship with the Lord. It is indeed only by the spirit that Jesus Christ gives. That's why they're spoken of as acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the bestower of the Holy Spirit. He who is necessary to join us unto himself. That we would be found acceptable in the beloved. 
Oh, dear one, I would ask you to earnestly search your hearts and determine, are you in the faith? Are you one of these possessors of spiritual life? Notice how they are described here. He also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. And how are they built up? They are built up upon the cornerstone. They are built up upon the glorious gospel of Christ Jesus. All that Jesus has ever done and all that he is set forth unto you in that glad good news of salvation. That unto sinners such as you and me there is life abundant found through the mediator to bring us back unto God, to make us accepted of God. Is this, dear one, what you are building your life upon? Are you building your life upon the sinking sand of a phony, false, shallow Christianity? Or upon the solid rock of the cornerstone? When the winds and the waves come, where shall you be found? When death approaches, when eternity is at hand, will you be found on the strong rock of Jesus Christ? Are you daily being built up upon him? Is your heart and thoughts going out unto him? Are your prayers pleading upon his mercies? Are you searching the scriptures to learn of him? Is he in your words? Is he in your in your heart's desires? Is he your purpose? Is he your goal? Are you being built up in Christ? Oh, do not be content with anything short of this. Do not be content with anything that is not built upon Christ. For there is coming a day where everything else will be flattened and destroyed. But that which is upon the sure foundation of the gospel of our Savior. Well, we've seen something of the persons and something of the power. I wish to speak just briefly about the practice, about the practice. Sorry, the purpose, I should say. I want to read again from Zechariah 6, which I've already read, but I want to read not only verse 12, but verse 13. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up, out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Christ Jesus here set forth as the priestly king, the one who rules and reigns with royal power, while also being the conduit, the focal point, the leader, and the source of all true worship. As the great high priest, he leads his people in bringing glory unto the throne of heaven. This is the purpose of the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life is not merely that you be happy, not just that you escape from hell. It is this, that you are fashioned and equipped and furnished with the grace necessary to bring glory unto God. 
Listen to Dr. Gill once more. These living stones being laid and cemented together in a gospel church state become the house of God in a spiritual sense, in distinction from the material house of the tabernacle and temple of old to which the illusion is and which is built up on habitation for God by the spirit and is made up of spiritual men such as have the Spirit of God and savor of the things of the Spirit and worship God in spirit and in truth, among whom spiritual services are performed as prayer, praise, preaching, and hearing the word and administering ordinances. I would have you meditate upon this in the coming day and the coming week, that you, believer, are the temple of the Lord. Yes, all of us together, corporately as the people of God, we have this purpose to serve the living God together, but also individually. I remember reading about a man who was a Canadian, but he was studying abroad in Great Britain during the Second World War. And he had... um, himself there when the bombs were falling in the blitz. And so what he would do is he would run out as a younger strong man. He would try to rescue people who were uh, stuck in the wreckage of some of these buildings. And he kept on doing that and kept on doing that until that one day he tried to rescue a little girl from that building and couldn't. She was lost. And so it was and devastated and uh, overcome with Grief, he decides, I'm just going to walk out into the snow, into the woods, and never come back. So he walks out into the snow, and he walks, and he walks, and he feels the chill coming over him, expecting that no one will ever find him again. And then, as he is sitting there, a word that he had heard from his Christian upbringing echoes in his mind in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. It's much better, you see, than a rebuke. Do not harm yourself. Do not count yourself to be utterly without hope. It was a mere question. Know ye not? Know ye not? And so it was that that man accounted that when God began to work in his life, and he saw that indeed, whatever they may be lacking in him, that whatever he has and whatever he is, he must bring glory to God. And so he returned to, to the city. So it is, must be with us, brothers and sisters, wherever that the deep discouragements of this life can sit in, we must understand that our purpose is the glory of God, that we are the temple of God. Let this be what brings joy and gladness to your soul. And may we all know it to be true. Amen.